people can be very superstitious beings. Um, it's not, uh, not lost on us in a kind of a Halloween season, especially. Um, we can be superstitious people, and, and I think athletes can be some of the most guilty folks in this. Uh, maybe you are an athlete, you grew up, you personally or your team, you had your little thing you did. Um, and we have these examples of famous athletes such as Michael Jordan uh, and following his NCAA uh, championship that he won with the, the, the Tar Heels. Um, he, he carried on wearing through his NBA career his practice shorts from the Tar Heels for good luck uh, through, that, through his, uh, his career. Uh, baseball players, they, they can be kind of the worst in this bucket. I mean, you've got things like the whole curse of the Bambino to, uh, you know, teams growing out beards and mustaches in playoff season. I uh, read this week that, that our, own, our twins, very own Hall of Famer, Justin Morneau, he had a ritual for every one of his home games. He would stop by the same Jimmy John's sandwich shop in Grand, on Grand Avenue. He'd order the same sandwich, the Turkey Tom with no sprouts, Afterwards, he would then go to the clubhouse where they had a Slurpee machine, and he would get a half Mountain Dew Slurpee and a half red or orange flavored Slurpee. <laughs> Slurpee power. That's, and it's not just athletes, right? We, the, the th- number 13, this very unlucky number. We don't, we don't even build a 13th floor or have a 13th floor listed on the, you know, elevators. Two, uh, two reasons, and you may have heard this, but we say bless you at, at, when somebody sneezes, had some, some superstitious roots. We don't really know where this began, but one origin suggests that when the bubonic plague was moving through Europe, the Pope suggested that we would say, God bless you, because the sneeze was a, a symptom of the plague, and it was like this little prayer in order to bring healing to the person who maybe would be sick or to ward off evil spirits. So, superstitious people. Uh, it's interesting, when pressed, when people are looking for a win or some sort of way out, if it be driven by fear or pride, the human heart clamors for some source of luck, some source of power, at times even some religious spirituality, a trick or an object in order to unlock some salvation, to bring some sort of security, victory, or safety. When we come to our text today in Samuel, and we find Israel following somewhat of a similar path. They, they're in a really bad spot. They need a way out. And they turn to a very good thing, but in a very wrong way. They look to some substitute, what seems really, really right, but it exposes the very horrendous condition of their heart and what it's been all along. And yet, we're going to see and witness God's gracious hand. The God revealing Himself as the one true God who's mighty, who's sovereign, and who saves a people who have rejected Him. And now, we've spent several weeks in the first three chapters of Samuel. We've learned of this family and this woman, Hannah. She cries out to the Lord for a child. God gives her a child. She gives him to him, as a, and he is raised in Eli, the, prophet, or the priest's home, he, uh, we realize that the, the priesthood is in disarray, and here's young Samuel being raised up as a prophet among all this, this sin, and judgment is pronounced on this household, and yet we, yet we recognize there is this, this word of hope that God's coming, that's coming to Israel through the prophet 
that something good, it seems like, is turning a corner. Now we're going to be, be reading this morning a large section, the, the, this grouping of chapters from four to seven are kind of go together. We're going to break them up into two parts and they really focus in on the ark. And uh, our approach today is we're going to kind of just read through the text together. But I want to read verse one before I pray to kind of set, set us up. Verse one, chapter four says this, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. Join me as we pray and ask for the Lord's help this morning. Lord, we thank you that we get to open up your word again this morning as we've been rehearsing the power of your gospel and the good of your salvation. And and Lord, the gift that we get to open up your word and know that this, this ancient book of Samuel inspired by the Spirit penned by men, but penned by the Spirit, the Spirit that now dwells in, in us. Lord, we can come, we can hear, we can believe, we can have our faith uh, uh, increased in your salvation today. And so, so Lord, we, we ask that you would come by your Spirit. Let us see, let us hear, let us believe, let us trust. Lord, for your glory and Lord, we ask for our joy. Amen. Amen. So our, our story picks up here in chapter 4. After, as we said, this amazing recounting of God's word coming to the prophet. I just want to go back to chapter 3 for a moment. Verse 20 says, And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, it's basically saying from the north to south, knew that Samuel was established as the prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, and the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Remember our emphasis, this the word of God coming, God speaking through the word and verse 4, chapter 1, works kind of as a hinge, looking back, what God is doing, and then what's ahead. And here's what we should feel and see. Chapter 3 was filled with the revelation of the Lord connected to hearing and responding to the word of the Lord through His prophet, meaning knowing what God wants and who He is and dependence on Him is by His speaking and His leading and what we're going to see is Samuel is going to disappear for the next three chapters. The word of the Lord is going to pull away from these few chapters, and it's going to be telling as we see the story unfold. So the word of the Lord came to Israel. Now Israel went out to battle with the Philistines. Now who were these people? Well, these people were settled in the west, kind of southwest of where Israel was settled. The people have been enemies of Israel for some time. If you recall back in Judges, there was often they were coming in and oppressing Israel, and there was battles there. Maybe Samson comes to mind. You remember his whole ordeal with the Philistines, and at the very end of his life, he was captured. His eyes were torn out, and the Spirit of God rushes on him, gives him power. He knocks down an entire building, killing a bunch of Philistine lords. Well, these bad guys are back. And they are a powerful people, a very strong military. They, they were known for their ability to work with iron and metal, and they had, they had significant skill there. They were settled in these main five cities that we're going to come, they'll come into our story. Uh, so here's a map to kind of get a little visual. Um, these key cities of Aphek and Ashdod and Gaza and Gath and Ekron. And now they're in the northern territory and it looks like they're trying to conquer and take over some areas of Israel, where the Israelites were. They're in Ebenezer. 
which is about 20 miles west of where Shiloh is. Remember where this was all happening with Eli and, and Hannah. And we read this in verse, uh, verse 1. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up a line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. Well, the start of the chapter is not good. This is horrible loss. They regroup. Verse 3, when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord, Yahweh, defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. I'm just going to read that again. That it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Now notice what the leaders of the Israel declared, or what they deduced. The Lord has defeated us. Even earlier, the narrator says that Israel was defeated before the Philistines. Not that the Philistines defeated them, but they were defeated before the Philistines. There was an acknowledgement that God did this to us. I mean, we, they, they got their butts handed to them, and then they say, what should we do? Remember our absence. There's something absent here. But they came up with an idea, let's get the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh. Now our story, as I said, is going to focus in around the Ark. And so let's just pause and consider what was the Ark. What is the Ark? The Ark of the Covenant was a chest covered in gold. There's uh, a picture that Moses was, was commanded to build for the tabernacle, the sanctuary. And it was to be placed in the Holy of Holies, this inner room uh, in the tabernacle. And inside the, the ark was going to be the testimony. The, the ark of the testimony is what it was called because it had the Ten Commandments in it. It also contained the, uh, air, the bud on Aaron's staff and then a jar with some of the manna that they, God fed him with in, in uh, the Exodus. So there's like these remnants of the Exodus and God's law. The lid that was covering it was called the atonement seat, and there were two cherubim, these angels, their, their wings touched, and it was right there at that point that the blood was applied by the high priest every uh, year, one, on one day, the day of atonement for the cleansing of God's people. And it said this is where God's presence resided. So this was a very, very important piece for Israel's worship. It was a symbol of Yahweh's presence and covenant with His people. And so, it is the ark that the leaders call out for to be brought to Shiloh to save them. They say, may it come and save us. Now, you might have a little footnote in your Bible. It could be translated he, but there's a lot of agreement that it's, it was it. It. May it come and save us. It's a bit of a startling clue that we're hearing here. And uh, more sort of inclinations of the problem come. Verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And then we read this. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Now first, let's just begin with this Lord of Hosts. This uh, reference we've heard a couple times in Samuel already. We were told in chapter 1, year by year, Elkanah went up and he worshipped the Lord of hosts. And then we see Hannah's prayer. She prayed to the Lord of hosts to, 
save her from her affliction. And, and so this name, Lord of hosts, communicates God being almighty. He is, we sang this earlier this morning in, our, in, in worship, the Lord of the armies. He is the one who does battle on behalf of God's people. He's powerful. And yet something kind of ominous is lurking here, and it's not positive. We've got these two characters standing right next to the holy representation of the Lord's presence and power, none other than Hophni and Phinehas, the scoundrels, the, the perverted, corrupt priests, sons of Eli, are the ones chilling out by the ark just about before they go into battle again. This is not a good sign. We read, as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, and the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Now the Philistines, we learn here, have heard the stories of long ago. They heard about this exodus. They heard about this deliverance that the God of Israel, where they would, they're pluralistic, they just believed in many gods, they just thought it was one of their gods had set them free from the Egyptians, and they knew of the plagues. Or just, we get, just think about this exodus. We'll find this mapping over some of our next chapters. But they hear, they hear Israel shouting. The Hebrews were so loud, the Israelites, that it, it scared them. It freaked them out. They muster up some Braveheart speech to, to go be men. But it seems like Israel's got this in the bag. I mean, this seems like a slam dunk for them. Israel marches out with the ark before them. And then we read this in verse 10. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. This is devastating. This is, this is horrible. 30,000 more men now have died. Israel is completely... It was a slaughter. This was a massacre. And even worse, the ark was captured. Never in Israel's history has this happened. And we conclude with verse 11, Hophni and Phinehas are dead. Their fate that was prophesied earlier has now been fulfilled we should see this defeat as judgment. But, but what do we make of this? Because if you know, if you remember, there are some stories where the ark going into battle was like the means of victory. This doesn't seem to make sense. In the Exodus, victory was present when the ark was marched out before the people at times. Remember the battle with, or, or, in Jericho with Joshua? They went around the, the walls of Jericho, they, had the, they were commanded for the ark to go around them. The, they yelled, the walls came crashing down. What is, what is different here? What is noticeably different is the absence which exposes the deeper issue. Remember, following 
the abundance of God's Word being sought and looked to in chapter 3, there's no prophet here. No word from the Lord. No crying out to Yahweh. No worshiping or prayer in the affliction or guidance. They asked, why has the Lord done this? But they didn't dig deep enough to figure out what was going on. In contrast to someone like Hannah. Remember our model of faith. This nobody woman, deeply distressed and yet crying out for the Lord for answers and looking to His might. Israel does not. The leaders identified that the Lord had defeated, asking them why, but they didn't dig enough for the answer. And this is what we've been seeing and what we will see all along and what this book of Samuel should be teaching us and Israel should ask of themselves, what or who are we trusting in? What are we placing our hope in when threats and enemies come against us? What thing, what man, what king? So rather than Yahweh, the Lord being the one they looked to, Israel made something, the ark, an object of their trust. Israel sought a religious object, not the Lord Himself in this moment. Not His Word. They thought the ark had the power rather than Yahweh who represented, was represented by the ark. The, mar- the, the ark might as well have been to them at this moment like a lucky rabbit's foot. It, it seems like, the, like an act on their part to manipulate God's power rather than looking to Him who was all-powerful and sovereign and who would work on their behalf as a Savior. This is all the while they just seem to be clueless about the darkened condition of their nation as Hophni and Phidus stood right next to this ark. It seems as Israel's looking just like the surrounding pagan nations, like they want to carry some token god out to do their bidding and be the one who wins their victory, not wanting Yahweh himself. This is stunning. This is stunning, and, it, and it's exposing, and I, I think we'd be, would be amiss if we didn't just consider our own hearts in this. The most spiritual of us can be tempted to these very things. We, we, can, we can pull in our good works and our, maybe in our spiritual disciplines and we think that somehow we've earned something and mandate God to do something for us. Or maybe we can have no relationship with the Lord Himself and yet those moments where we just, something goes south and we're just throwing up a Hail Mary just because we want to kind of get out of trouble card. Just a sort of a go-go gadget call and just we want something to take place. We see it in politics. It's the politician who thinks he can, he can gain power or vote simply by inserting some Christian ark. God will not be manipulated by us. God will not be manipulated by any politician or anything else. He will not be manipulated. He shows us here. He is the God who looks upon the heart, as he would tell us later when he calls David. An observation by commentator Dale Davis, he says, when we, whether Israelites or Christians, operate this way, our concern is not to seek God, but to control him. Not to submit to God, but to use him. So we prefer religious magic to spiritual holiness. We are interested in success, not repentance. This chapter exposes one of those realities for Israel and 
And I think it's helpful for us to consider our hearts. God wants their hearts. God wants our hearts. He wants true repentance and trust on Him alone, not in any object or thing. So, devastation happens, and then the news heads back to Eli. We read in verse 12, A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, the whole city cried out, When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, What did it, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. It's interesting, it says that Eli had been on the road watching. It's very unusual, because he's 98 and he can't see. And even in that, there's this huge uproar and and, uh, what what I would assume lament and cries of pain, and yet he has to ask, tell me about the battle, what happened? Again, this sort of lack of awareness of what really is going on and the condition. And yet he was seeing enough with his heart that it says his heart was trembling with fear. Trembling because of news about the ark. Why? Because he had knowledge. He'd been told two times, both from the man of God and both from Samuel, these prophetic words of judgment against his house. And he, he knew something was going to go wrong. And after he heard the news, it says, verse 18, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat on the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy. He judged Israel 40 years. As soon as he heard about the ark, he was overcome and he fell over. It's interesting that not the news of his sons that provoked this fall, but it was of the ark itself. This is tragic. This is, this is horrible. Remember, remember Samuel's word to say that from the Lord that this is going to be news that will make every ear in Israel tingle, meaning not in a good way. It, was, it would disturb everyone. This is disturbing. I mean, just let, just let the description sort of, we should feel this, like this old obese man falls over and breaks his neck and dies. It should feel gross. It, it should, we should feel the disturbing nature of those description. And all this right at the gate of the city, which was a place of judicial meeting, of ruling, of judgment. And it was there, Eli, he judged for 40 years. The place of where holy, pure, godly judgment from his holy representative should be, it was the place of this old obese man who falls over and dies. Prophecy fulfilled. Judgment has come. And sadness and calamity continues. Verse 19, Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth, and when she heard the news of the ark was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, 
She bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband, and she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Another just horrendous picture for us. Grief. The moment of a child being born, death right in the midst of that. I mean, a woman giving birth to a child should be overjoyed. We, we see, the, see the contrast with Hannah as any woman would be. And this, this it says, Phineas' wife paid no attention to the fact that she just had a child. Only lament on this day, the death of her son's father, her uncle, his, the child's uncle, her father-in-law, for the ark had been captured. It was gone. It's interesting to note that the narrator writes, since the Philistines have captured the ark, it's just referred to as the ark of God, not the ark of the covenant of Yahweh. It's this compounding message. God's presence and blessing and glory is vanishing from this rebellious people. So it seems fitting that she names the child Ichabod, which means something like, where, where is the glory or no glory? She states that the glory of God is gone. And it's another inter- interpretation is that his glory has been exiled from Israel. Exiled, it's the same word. It's a very interesting play on words here. And Eli was described as heavy. It is the verb form of kabod, which is the word that we use for glory which has a sense of weightiness and heaviness. So the, the old, heavy, overweight Eli falls over, departs, and dies. He should have displayed honorably God's glory, but is now dead as the glory or the kabod, the heaviness departs of God departs from Israel. The one who is enthroned on the cherubim, his glory is exiled. Part of this is is relaying to Israel a reality of what has been communicated through Moses when the covenant was ratified and the law was given. The Lord told Israel through Moses that if you were to obey my commands and follow my ways, you'll be blessed. But if you reject me and reject my commands, curses will come upon you. And one of those things is you will be exiled from the land. There will be oppression that would come and you would be removed Eventually that would happen, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Yet his presence, we know, is not tied to an object. Yahweh is fully active, fully present in judgment and in blessing. And he is faithful to his covenant. His glory is tied to his name, his covenant promise to make a people for himself, to give them new hearts, to make them holy, who will know him and love him. And he will not let his promise and his covenant be broken. For his purpose was for Israel, though in this moment his presence was there in judgment, he's in the background working his merciful deliverance. So our scene moves from this situation and now shifts back to the Philistines. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside 
Dagon. So, like an athlete winning his championship trophy, setting up in its case, or like a hunter in his prize kill, this, is, this ark is set up in there next to Dagon in his house like this sort of war trophy. Remember, the Philistines are polytheistic. They had many gods. But the ark, they went and set him right next to their, their chief champion god, which is Dagon. Just so Dagon could stand there and we, we could know who is the champion in the eyes of all the Philistines, in the eyes of Dagon, because he needed to be informed. Dagon goes all the victory and all the spoils. So the Philistines head to bed after probably a pretty amazing after party when their big victory, and they wake up. Verse 3, And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground, downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. This is supposed to be very humorous. Humor with holy truth embedded in it. Dagon, Dagon falls on his face. Note, before the Ark of Yahweh. It's interesting. Here we go. It's called Ark of Yahweh again. Dagon, in sort of total homage, bows down to the higher power. Then the Philistines have to pick their chief god back up and put him back in his place. If you have to pick up your god after he falls over, it is very revealing about your god. Well, maybe this was an accident. Maybe we just partied too hard and just something happened and it fell over. So the next day they get it, they put it back up and they come in. And this time, Dagon's on his face again before the ark of the Lord. But this time, decapitated and his hands cut off. Ultimately, a display of the stripping of Dagon's power. This would be common once you defeated an enemy is to cut off his hands and his head and show and proof that they are powerless Dagon is a joke. Hannah prayed in chapter 2, verse 10, that adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Broken, chopped up in pieces, in little bits. There is no other God but the one true God, Yahweh, sovereign, creator, Lord, head crushing his enemies. Our minds should go to that Genesis promise that one day there would be someone that would come and a crushing blow would come to that serpent. Verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. Now comment here before we read on. It will inform the rest of this section. Dagon is decapitated. His hands are chopped off and useless and powerless. And then we read in verse 6, the hand of the Lord is now heavy against the Philistines there. Remember our word earlier regarding the glory, the kabod of the Lord? Where is God's glory now? What is God's glory doing in this moment? 
as we read now, notice the Lord's hand through our text. And he terrified, terrified, uh, terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how, many, how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. And they went out and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. I don't know what they had with Gath, but they thought, let's just give it to Gath. So they sent it to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. And after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that the tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of the God to Ekron. I don't know what was up with Ekron, but they did not like Ekron. But as soon as the ark of the God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The Philistines experienced a devastating, deathly blow. The people of Ashdod are being struck by these, they don't know what it was, some sort of plague, some sort of growth, tumors, not sure what it was. Some suggest it maybe was a bubonic plague of some sort. They assess this is connected to Israel's God for His hand is hard against us. They're smart enough to know this is what is going on. They send it off to another city, the same thing. The hand of the Lord was against them. They, tumors there, they send it off to another city, the same thing. For the hand, the very heavy kabod of the Lord was there. Notice, God is winning His battles toppling the chief gods of other nations without any human intervention. He doesn't need Israel at all. It's proof that they actually are mucking it all up. I love this little line from Dale Davis. It says, the ark had fallen into their hands, but they had now fallen into Yahweh's hands. God's presence is going forward and winning even when Israel is unfaithful. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, I just have been unfaithful. God is the one who moves towards you in salvation even when our hearts are unfaithful. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't give up fighting for you when you are weary and fail to be faithful? It's interesting that the pagan Philistines were raising their cries up to heaven, what was glaringly absent for Israel, who knew, who should know Yahweh. They're looking to themselves. Remember I said Exodus is sort of embedded here in our story. This is, Israel should remember what the hand of the Lord can do. They would have known the story of Exodus when God said that he, His hand would rescue them out of Slavery, as they cried out, he says, I will stretch out my hand and strike the 
Egyptians and free them from their bondage. Just as much as his hand would come and bring plagues against, in judgment against Pharaoh in Egypt. Later in exile, while in Babylon, surrounded by idols, God would speak and warn Israel against the idols that were there in Babylon. In chapter 46 of Isaiah, it says this, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. These are two chief Babylonian gods. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. These, these idols of greatness in Babylonian culture, they're made by man, and you have to pick them up with your hands and carry them and put them on your vehicles in order to get them around somewhere. Like, use your minivan, get your gods in there, transport them to service and back. They cannot save. They bow down like Dagon. And God says of Himself in verses 3 and 4, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from your birth, carried from the womb. Do you hear the hand language God carrying? Even to your old age I am He, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made you and I will bear you. I will, bear you. I will carry and will save. That message from the beginning in Genesis that Adam and Eve were tempted just to look to something else rather than the Lord. To what He had to speak to Israel in this place through the prophet Isaiah. The Lord uses His mighty hand to carry His people and save them. This has always been His promise. His weight of glory comes to undeserving people And out of His steadfast love and grace, He saves. He saves the people He loves. Just kind of a a side note, the the critiques that sometimes we could think of or people would say how like the Old Testament God is different than the New Testament God. Just wrath and hate in the Old Testament and some other God in the New Testament. Do you see God's mercy and grace moving through this text towards the people He loves? He's showing Israel, He's showing us that He is the only powerful, living, true, holy God. Our chapters should teach us this. The Lord is holy. Yahweh's presence and hand is unsafe for those who reject Him. God judges the Philistines and He also judges His people. He is the same God as the New Testament. Do you mean Ananias and Sapphira who lie to the Holy Spirit? Drop down dead in church service. He still does that. Yet, His presence and His hand is safe for those who hide in Him. His provision and rescue for all those who turn in faith to Him. Saints, we are left hopeless if we think we can save ourselves, and we misplace our worship and trust on some little rabbit foot saviors that we look to. They'll leave us empty. They'll leave leave us defeated. Our hope rests on the hand of God working on behalf of idolaters to save them and rescue them. And His grace is most fully displayed and mercy in Jesus. See how this connects. In God's mercy, what appeared to be total catastrophe, the ark being permitted to go into the enemy's hands, in turn, He uses to crush his enemies, top idols, 
and expose Israel's unfaithfulness and yet is in the background working to save and rescue, turn their heart back to him. Jesus, the Son of God, likewise, were, was permitted to allow himself into the hands of enemies. What seemed to be a losing war and weakness, God uses as the means for victory. His glory displayed in the weakness of a Roman cross is the very means by which he saves and rescue his pe- rescues his people. He was delivered into the hands of sinful men, but as the believers prayed in Acts, they knew that all of this was God's hand working what would took, took place to save us. Jesus uses his power and holiness and his love and takes our sin upon himself, the punishment for our idolatry to destroy our enemies and save us from our sins. This is what Colossians chapter 2 tells us. By canceling, Jesus, who went to the cross, makes us alive in him, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus comes crushing our sin and our enemy by he himself being crushed. He defeats Satan, death, and sin's penalty as we look to his sovereign saving hand. In church, he sets us free by the Spirit to then continue to identify the things that we would look to, the idols of our heart, to recognize them and turn from them and turn to him again and again. It's amazing that we can, the the things that we can look to can be very spiritual things. I was convicted this week as I was just praying and working through the text that is seeing just even even as a pastor, the, the things that I can look to that are ministry-oriented or good or, or spiritual as, as the, the markers of wins, as success or what would be proof of happiness and peace, and I'm overlooking Jesus himself. We can do that. We can look to our works. We can look to our righteousness and overlook the righteousness given to us in Jesus. And saints, we live in a world where Satan and the world bombards us with lies idols that says they will liberate us and bring life, sexual freedom or money or power or possessions, human superstitions wielded to to feel like we have won and they will make us free. And oftentimes there are good things that we look to as ultimate things to give us peace and happiness that only Jesus should give us. So we hear and we obey words like 1 John chapter 5. Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life Little children, my beloved, my people, keep yourselves from idols. And God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Jesus uses His power to come and in His weakness to lift us up in our weakness. So what, what should we do? We should humble ourselves saints we should come humbly and we should see and put our faith on the god who uses his mighty hands to save us so that you and i could fall into the safe good hands of jesus doesn't that sound better than than dumb weakless powerless dagons that we so often look to 
So we see his grace. We see his mercy. We see him using all of his holiness, all of his strength, all of his power, all of his, his humility to go to a cross so that he could lift us up so that we could find refuge and deliverance and safety in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you have used your mighty hands, what look like complete loss was actually victory. The cross, Lord, your cross, what looked like weakness in the eyes of men is what you actually used to deliver and save your people. You, Lord, were were ravaged on the cross so that we could be set free from the idols of our heart, our misplaced worship. When we, we don't turn to your word or trust and look to you, Jesus. And so thank you for the mercy and grace displayed, even in a moment like 1 Samuel chapter 4 and 5 that looks disturbing and, and troubling. Your grace worked through that to save and rescue a people for yourself. And like you promised to Israel in Isaiah 46, you, you carry us in your strong hands, Lord. So we, we fall back into your hands today by faith. We, we, we turn from the things that we look to for deliverance and hope and happiness and peace, those little idols, God, and we, we cast ourselves freshly on you today. Set us free. Strengthen us, Lord. And you don't just give us discernment to identify those idols, Lord. You give us power to follow and trust and obey you. So fill us with your power today to do that very thing. We're not victims to them, Lord. We're not powerless to them. You've defeated them. They fall over like Dagon's, Lord. Heads chopped off and no hands, and you are the true living God. So we put our faith and hope in you. Amen.